You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network. Hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. All right, thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast. My name is Blake Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at BlakeMurphy7. And uh, today we've got a special guest I'm joined with uh, coming from the Draft Network. Uh, also has been a writer for Revenge of the Birds in the past. It's Damian Parson, who is coming on to talk all about the 2022 NFL Draft, particularly with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Damian, how are you doing today? Oh, man, Blake, I am good, man. You know, just... uh. Got a nice workout in, got some, uh, you know, went and got a nice massage and just relaxed before uh, really before really getting into this heavy, high-octane summer we have here at TDN. So, uh, otherwise, I'm doing great, man. It's fantastic to hear. Yes, obviously, uh, it's been awesome to have you on, being able to pitch in, talk a little bit about the cards. Um, before we go jump right into Arizona, this was, for many people, very unpredictable draft. Uh, with 2022, I think the biggest things that stood out to me was the um first round as far as for how you saw the pass rushers went with a couple of surprises the receivers went earlier than maybe many were expecting though not quite as many and obviously the quarterbacks it seems that the nfl spoke up with how they reacted in the offseason with tons of trades tons of quarterback movement and only one first rounder that was late first what were anything that you felt as far as the narrative of the 2022 draft anything that stood out to you or anything that surprised you no, I listen. I was on our live stream, and it it was very surprising. The number, of, first of all, the number of consecutive trades. You have the uh, Lions moving up from thirty-two to get what we at the time thought was going to be Malik Willis because they loved the kid. But it was more so teams. One of the biggest things was team state. They stuck to their board. So it was like, yeah, we may have a need at quarterback, but Jameson Williams is falling. We got to go get that guy to complete our receiving core. And that's kind of where they went. They went with Aiden Hutchinson. They went and got him. Then A.J. Brown being traded from Tennessee to, to Philly. And then Tennessee drafting his heir apparent, which is the guy at Traylon Brooks who was compared to him for at least a year now. You know, and you look at Washington moving back and, um, you know, them going out and getting Jahan Dotson to pair with Terry McLaurin. It was just so much movement and just – it was it literally this draft literally stayed to the name. It was unpredictable. You didn't know what was coming, when it was coming. You just knew something chaotic was going to happen. And like the first couple picks and stuff, like you know, for top five, uh, except for like the sauce pick. The sauce pick kind of threw come of some of us off. We figured that that the Jets wanted sauce, but it was just like him at four, where they could have had Jermaine Johnson, which they ended up getting later, which made their first-round draft a whole lot better. Ain't able to get him. It's just the order and what they got him. But, you know, he was probably more kind of confusing one at first. But the top ten, for the most part, stayed kind of normal. After that, man, it was like – it was balls to the wall. It was like, hey, it's a free-for-all, whatever. Whoever's on the board, if, I, if this is not my guy – we don't want him. You, know, you look at a team like the Baltimore Ravens who said, well, if you're going to let all these great players fall to us, don't mind us. We're going to take the best guy that's available. So uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, like I said, when we brought up the quarterbacks, teams went out and got their veteran guys. And what it spoke to as well is that there's a lot of franchises right now who are not built to wait. So it was like, okay, yeah, we know how talented Malik Willis is. But 
I don't know, as a GM and a coach, I don't know if we have enough time. So let's just, because once you pick a quarterback, especially if you pick them high and you're a team, you're a staff that doesn't believe you have a long tenure, a long leash rather, it kind of speeds that up. Whereas like the GM and everybody and the owners and the fans are like, okay, well, we got our quarterback now, so let's get the ball rolling. So some teams have avoided that. And we just went with, with players to to completely fill out their roster. Totally, yeah. I think uh, some funny things are like, you know, the Lions within maybe 30 seconds running up to turn in the card for Aiden Hutchinson. Once it was uh, official that the Jaguars took Trayvon Walker, um, the Giants were interesting. They kind of, despite everything talking about Kayvon Thibodeau potentially falling, he still goes top five. They decide to wait and take the best of the other two offensive tackles who fall, probably get their guy in Evan Neal. Um, like you said, weapons went fast and furious early, and then in the late first, it felt like that it was you know, a couple of surprises that stood out. The Chiefs made a move up for a corner, Obviously, Kenny Pickett going to Pittsburgh over Malik Willis, where, like you said, the emphasis on winning now. I think a lot of people are looked at Pickett going, he's probably a guy who could start if you had to pick one quarterback in this class who could start as a rookie. But as far as his upside compared to a Malik Willis, maybe even a Desmond Ritter, um, I, I think I kind of joked and said that like the Steelers essentially may be getting themselves like 2020 version of Big Ben with Kenny Pickett because he's not quite the arm that Big Ben had at his peak. He's got mobility that you had for the most part, but you kind of are just going to be kind of keeping that train rolling versus kind of seeing a franchise reset. Uh, definitely some very intriguing areas for the most part. I, I think seeing the lack of running backs going on day one, several safeties and a big push for wide receivers and offensive linemen was huge, uh, followed by just the obvious lack, I could say, for the most part of um, defensive linemen in this class made it where there was a lot of pass rushers that were essentially kind of picked clean by pick number 40. Um, there's definitely some intrigue, I think, that you can say about with round three, some of the skill players, some of the other tight ends that are there. Um, and then, of course, in the last half of the draft, there's obviously a couple of different uh, you know, stud players that maybe are playing pretty early. Daniel Bellinger may get a lot of push for the Giants early. Like you may end up seeing, you know, a Perry and Winfrey play a lot of snaps potentially or Damian Pierce for the Texans. So it was one of those areas where I think the draft did end up being a lot deeper in places than we thought as far as some of these players. And like you said, teams trying to grab guys that are going to be playing for them early and often. Was there any other drafts that stood out to you in particular, at least that you felt like for one reason or another, maybe one that's not been talked about as much? Mm. Uh, I would be on Green Bay, the way Green Bay selected, starting out with, with, uh, uh, with Quay Walker, who I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Quay Walker. That was kind of the surprising, one of the surprising picks for me. I didn't expect to see that. The fact that in, I knew that they, a lot of people, I know, like, because because they had the two first round picks, their own, and the one from um, Las Vegas for the Devontae, uh, Devontae Adams situation. A lot of people expected them to go two receivers in the first round. I was like, I, I highly doubt they're going to go one receiver in the first round, to be honest with you, just because that's just not who they are. Uh, they are a team that believes in developing guys and, um, you know, and going and playing to their board. And they just didn't feel the receivers that were available at the time were better than the defenders that were available. So them going to get Quay Walker and teaming him up with his Georgia teammate and Devontae, Devontae Wyatt was great, in my opinion. It's it was really, because at the end of the day, that's something, the, the run defense for Green Bay has been an issue for quite some time. They've improved, you know, year to year, 
but just being able to get become more physical, more stout, more athletic, and violent in the front seven is so big and so prevalent that I didn't mind it. But it was just a shock to see Quay Walker go there. Uh, so I love what they did. And then, of course, doubling down with them going in the second round. And that's the second round, but also I believe in round four or somewhere in there, also on day two and day three, getting Christian Watson, an explosive, big body, six foot four, 200 plus pound, sub four four receiver who's got some rawness to his game for playing at North Dakota State in the run heavy run off, uh, a run heavy offense, but the sky's the limit if you can you know you tap into that potential. And Matt Lafleur does a great job of just being able to open guys up with his concepts and his spacing. Then getting another speedster, Romeo Doves, just kind of signaling to the teams like, hey, we don't have Devontae Adams, but trust and believe we're still going to chuck it deep because that's what Aaron Rodgers loves to do. Yeah, I definitely think with Watson it was interesting because like a lot of people were like looking at the athletic profile and I always felt like like he was probably a guy who had a, more of an MVS type as his floor because of the speed, the vertical nature for each of those ones, the small school ability. That was one of the spots of I think a lot of people maybe are looking sometimes. This is something we can talk about too with Cardinals fans. When you kind of expect or are comparing to like, you know, Hall of Fame players, you're almost always going to be disappointed. But when you find those type of quality players, like if you can essentially replace MVS on a, you know, four year type of deal where Whereas he goes to Kansas City and gets paid $10 million a year, you can now allocate that money to other places. And I think that's where smart drafting ends up going. Um, I know I like the Texans draft, honestly, like as far as the players they got, like experienced leaders, like that was one thing that it felt like that these are players that are going to get second contracts with the team. And I also really felt like that the New York Jets were a team that essentially just said, we're going to go out and get as much talent as we can. Um, not just to be able to help surround our quarterback, but in putting it into premium positions and with like getting a top corner, being able to get a top receiver, getting one of the top-rated edge rushers in the class, and then going out and following it up with Brees Hall and Jeremy Rucker. Like you've done at least a solid job for the most part, despite maybe having kind of the last year of all of these different draft picks from the um, trade that you had for the most part with the Seahawks and sending away your um, Pro Bowl safety you're at least going to be in a spot now where you actually have the amount of talent where you'll be able to truly evaluate some of the players that you have here. And I think that's super exciting always when you're able to see a team go out there, take some of the resources, and be able to capitalize on just being able to surround a young quarterback while you've got that rookie deal uh, that they're on. Exactly. And that's kind of the biggest, uh, my biggest knock on the – this is how Steve Kime has handled the Kyler Murray situation. You know, you look at what Justin Herbert's getting. You look at Tua Tungavailoa, what he's gotten. When you have a guy on a rookie deal at quarterback, that's typically the window you want to try and build, build, build to try and win that Super Bowl, that elusive Super Bowl, right? And that's kind of been my biggest issue with Kime. You know, you made the trade for DeAndre Hopkins, which has been great, and I love D-Hop. Then you extended him and paid him 28 mil, 28 and a half mil per year. That's low in quarterback money, which I completely disagree with because I don't believe any receiver should be paid close to $30 million. Like that type of chunk in, in the, in the cap space for your team is just unreal. And then you just not, never really fully built this team up on like taking advantage of that rookie contract. So it's like that, that's the thing, man. When you, like you said, being able to, that's why I love what the jets did. Because now I'm all – and same thing with Miami. I love when teams say, okay, everybody else on the outside may have questions about our quarterback. 
let's go ahead and let's put everything, all the chips on the table, put everything in the lap of this quarterback and say, now you prove us right. Don't worry about proving everybody outside wrong. Prove us right because we took, we've taken away all of the excuses. Your offensive lines are improved. Your weapons are vastly improved. Your defenses are improved. Everything's improved. So now all you have to do is go play football. Go be a point guard. Make the right passes. Set your guys up. Don't turn the ball over. Don't kill us on, on, on back-breaking pick sixes or anything wild like that. Don't go out there and be a hero. Go play your game, and let's go win some football games. And that's that's what I love about what, especially what the Jets did. Because a lot of the questions were about you know Zach Wilson. I felt like they were unfair. Because I'm like, did we not see what this team looked like last year? Right. And this young man's coming from playing at BYU, who in his final year of the season was, a, which is a COVID season. They didn't play a lot of the top teams that he played the year before. So it's like, okay, it's a a little bit of an adjustment. The speed, the spacing, everything's different for him. Now he's got a year under his belt. He's worked out. He's, he's added muscle and gotten bigger. And now you've added weapons to him. So it's like, okay, now let's see what he has as what I would call his, you know, his full rookie season. When he's got that full 17-game stretch where let's watch his development game to game, not just snap to snap. All right, and that'll, that'll be something interesting that's to kind of compare with, you know, the Jets to the Cardinals as we've obviously seen the Jets are seemingly at the forefront of this turnaround that they've had to kind of undergo in the post-Adam Gaze era. And they were in a very, very similar situation to Arizona when you look at moving up in a huge trade, spending a lot of draft capital on a Pac-12 quarterback that probably didn't have, whether it was the athleticism, whether it was being able to make plays out of structure, um, and in just a lot of the ways the development just was lacking as far as being able to um, have that quarterback be put in a position to succeed because development is not just about how a quarterback progresses individually. It's the fact that, you know, a quarterback is the guy who affects his offense more than anyone and maybe even affects his team, but is also affected by his team. Like, you know, you may have a exact perfect play from your quarterback who evades a sack on third down. Everything goes messy. He throws the ball and the receiver is just not ready for it. And it's as it being a drop on third down. Like that's one of those places where you end up having to look at with your quarterback of, like you said, supporting them and giving them enough support. The Jets, at least, have been in a spot where the Cardinals have kind of been able to grow and progress and come out of, but it is definitely interesting as far as when you're talking about what Arizona chose to do in their offseason and in this draft. Obviously, that starts for a lot of people with Cardinals going into maybe the final year of Cliff Kingsbury and Steve Kimes' contracts, uh, being able to go and renew those for the long term after the playoff appearance, which some fans were disagreeing over. Some fans were saying, well, like they've kind of done everything you've expected them to as far as they won more and more games each year, moved up from the number one seed. Kyler Murray seems to be in kind of becoming a star. I think that you could kind of say that the difference between star and superstar, you're like, okay, fantasy football, how it works. Maybe you can say he's a star quarterback. Like, I think that's easy enough to say. But as far as for the superstar expectations, you know, there's definitely still some questions out there. Um, and a lot of, like you talked about with the teams making win-now moves, I feel like that you look at this draft and it was essentially a very win-now draft for the Cardinals, starting with the fact that 
They didn't trade up for a receiver. There weren't any receivers that were really going to be available for them. You look at the edge rushers that were there, like maybe you look at a Jermaine Johnson or a Carl Loftus for the most part. Not one of these kind of top 10 type of edge rushers. They didn't move up for one of those. And then when he comes down to the offensive line, it seems like that they kind of had a choice to make between grabbing a center for the long term or maybe a slight reach on an offensive lineman or trying to do this trade, which in turn was probably the route that for I think most Cardinals fans was logical. And for me, it's logical in a way of uh, recreating some of the areas of Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, they traded the way their pick for Marquise Brown. Uh, the Ravens were probably not going to pay him the amount of money because of the scheme that they were in. And this fits with the continuing trend of quarterbacks and wide receivers being reunited. So what do you think will be the impact of either the familiarity, how that leans for quarterbacks? Do you not put as much stock into it? Or is this a spot where Arizona gave away a first round pick and got back, you know, two contract years for a smaller receiver who, you know, he had a thousand yards last year and obviously turmoil happened in Baltimore too. Uh, he just has not really kind of hit his potential. Do you think he will hit that in Arizona now that he's got his old college QB tossing him the pigskin? I do. And, and to your point when you brought up, you know, reuniting uh, college quarterbacks with their receivers. I mean, just look at the, this, this, well, not this class, but the previous class, last year's receivers class, right? You, you pair Jamar Chase up, who was a rookie of the year with, his college quarterback, who they won the national championship with, right? You pair Tua Tungavailoa with his speedster from Alabama and Jalen Waldo, and they make magic over in Miami. So um, those are those things that that connection. When you know what how a guy runs his route, you know his timing, you know what just makes him tick, and the fact that being friends off the field matters a lot too. So for me, the reason why, I, and I said this on the broadcast, I didn't mind trading that pick from Hollywood Brown. The reason why, and a lot of people, they will kill Hollywood Brown because he's not he, hes not the most productive guy. But you brought it up, the scheme. Greg Roman, look at his history, not just with Lamar Jackson, it's with Tyrod Taylor, it's with Colin Kaepernick. He runs a run-heavy offense that attacks between the hashes with the tight ends. It's always been that way. And it hasn't changed. And as somebody who roots for Lamar Jackson, I wanted – Greg Roman fired a long time ago because I felt like he's holding Lamar Jackson and that passing offense back because the only thing he's consistently evolving in is his running, his running concepts, you know? So it's like, okay, you have a five foot 10, 180 pound or so receiver who's a blazer and you're like, okay, block 25 times a game, 30 times a game. And it's just like, yeah, that's not really what I do, man. Like that's not really my thing, but also Lamar Jackson's strength isn't the deep ball. That's Marquise Hollywood Brown's strength. So it's like, okay, this this doesn't mesh, right? So it's like, okay, let this, and those two are great. They're great friends. They love each other. Lamar Jackson was audible about the trade on Twitter when it happened. He wasn't really happiest person about it because that's his guy, and right. he wanted he that's the guy he was he trusts and he would go to war with every Sunday. But putting him back with. Kyler Murray is so big because Kyler excels at the deep ball. He's one of the best deep ball throwers in football. And right. we saw that up until what, eight week, what, seven or eight, uh, that Green Bay game. He ends up, you know, spraining the ankle. AJ Green has a, a complete brain fart. And, you know, we lose the game on an interception. But <laughs> you look at yeah. how he, he saw those one on one opportunities because with DeAndre Hopkins out there, 
teams are still going to roll coverage to him because he's so dangerous. So then you leave A.J. Green one-on-one, you put Christian Kirk in the slot, you run these slot fades with him one-on-one. And Kyler Murray, he, one thing he does so well running this air raid offense when they go spread, he locates and identifies that one-on-one matchup. And he, he knows where the safeties are. He knows where, where, where leverage is. He's like, okay, he picks his guy. And he, he, lets, he drops back, he lets it play out post-snap. And if it's still the same thing he saw pre-snap, he hits it. And he's so accurate with the ball downfield. So now you pair with a guy that he knows very well. And from everything that I've been told, these are these are two guys who've been who have wanted this for quite some time. Like even with Marquise Brown being in Baltimore, mm, he yeah. still wanted to be with Kyler Murray. So there's a commitment there. These are two guys who want to make this work. So DeAndre Hopkins is not going to be there for the first six games, right? But Marquise Hollywood Brown is going to be able with his speed and his legit game-breaking speed, if you do not slow him down, if you do not press him, if you not impede him with a, and give him a free release, and he can change gears and get the top speed and run past you. There's a saying that if, if he's even, he's leaving. He's that type <laughs> yep. of guy. And he gets downfield and, then, and it's one-on-one, Kyler's going to him. And that's going, but he's going to open up just early, even early on. He's going to open up Zach Ertz. He's going to open up the run game. And oh, I swear, I'm praying to God that that Cliff stops this this you know magic toy type of usage with Rondell Moore and really let this young man do different things. Mm-hmm. And as a receiver, because that's the piece, that's the X factor to this offense. No, I think I agree. And what I've pointed out, I think, is that ever since he came into the league, and we heard this from. Cardinals GM Steve Kime said that they would have loved to have traded back up for Hollywood Brown. He was not available. Um, we know that they were looking at potentially adding a wide receiver in the second round, chose to go with Byron Murphy instead. A lot of things, I think, ultimately have hinged in a lot of ways on some of those decisions from that rookie year. Um, you look at what Arizona drafted, and you look at the Oklahoma offense coming out, and you take a look at see, okay, they were probably trying to replicate as much of that offense as possible over the last few years. The uh, pick of Andy Isabella in the second round, even over you know DK Metcalf, who probably fell due to a lot of injury issues and concerns for each of those areas. For teams, fell obviously a bit too far now. I think as everyone can be considerable. <laughs> but when they picked Isabella, I was excited because they're like, hey, they couldn't get Hollywood Brown, but here's a four-two guy that you can hopefully take the top off the defense. A few rounds later, they pick a Hakeem Butler, who is an athletic outside type of guy who had played quite a bit in the slot in college and maybe to some degree was overdrafted somewhat but it was still worth taking that athleticism on they wanted him to be on one side you would have that larger athletic x type receiver and then on the other you could have a slot to outside a four two speedster and being able to see kind of levels in your offense very similar to how oklahoma was able to be so dominant and what's interesting is that we've seen the cardinals over a couple years essentially get back to that same type of formula they traded for deandre hopkins who is probably fitting exactly in that CD Lamb type of X receiver. Um, they're able to bring in eventually a Zach Ertz. They, as far as the Grant Calcaterra role, and I, I had even advocated, you know, before knowing that this trade would go down, that hey, if there's a chance to grab one more of Kyler's teammates that he knows or is familiar with, this may be the last draft to do it. Arizona does do that, just not in the way anyone expected. <laughs> 
and being able to see at least how they followed that up with another tight end pick, which we'll talk about. But they finally have, I think, the ability to have, like we said, multiple levels of um, offense. And even with Rondale Moore, if you, like you said, are able to utilize that speed where suddenly you can put him into the slot, run similar routes to Christian Kirk down the field, opening things up for Hollywood to get some separation in the intermediate, um, then that you also have the ability to in more break tackles, take on some of the other types of role, maybe even out of the backfield a bit, you're at least able to kind of see that there's strengths. And the biggest thing, like you said about Hollywood, uh, you look at like the most efficient downfield players in the NFL last year, uh, a lot of, especially on like 30 to 40 yards or more talking about like Devonte Adams, Tyreek Hill, um, even looking at Christian Kirk in that role in Arizona's offense, Hollywood Brown was like the most efficient 40 plus yard guy that you had in the NFL. And Kyler was the most efficient, like 40 plus yard passer. Exactly. It feels like that's a perfect marriage. I think that's one of the avenues, like you said, that it just clicks and makes sense for this offense, not just for the relationship aspect, but their skill sets are able to complement each other. And I think that will hopefully not just be able to tie, uh, I say tied over DeAndre Hopkins being out, but be able to essentially establish Arizona's offense is finally hitting that potential so long as uh, you know they're able to adjust and be able to continually manipulate the defense um, in ways that we saw for not just the first half of the season but over the second half as well when it felt like that they just either didn't adjust enough or were you know running the same style of offense only with Antoine Wesley there instead of DeAndre Hopkins which is is a little bit of a, a drop off I'd say. <laughs> A little bit of a drop off. Yeah, I think that was a, that was a, the biggest takeaway from the second half of the season. Blake is just the lack of depth at the weapon in the weaponry department. You know, when DeAndre Hawkins is down, and then you have Rondell Moore who was down. Chase Edmonds got banged up. James Conner got banged up, and it's just like man, like then you thrust a thirty-plus-year-old AJ Green who ex- who was excelling as that number two, number three type of receiver who almost had a thousand yards receiving and then you thrust him to, okay, now you're not facing number two, number three corners. You're say, you're facing the top guy with DeAndre Hopkins out. And that's why, that's why my biggest thing with Cliff is, is really allow. Now you have a lot of speed. You have a lot of speed with Hollywood Brown and Rondell Moore. You think about just getting crossers, you know, cross field routes with Rondell Moore. That's going to open up some of those. If he starts to run those with them, those option and choice routes where he's pressing like he's going on a shallow cross, puts pumps the brakes and runs a basketball out, a whip route. And now the def- the cornerback's leverage and momentum's taking him cross field. Rondell Mills wide open on a five yard on a five yard quick uh, whip route and different things of that nature and just really allow him to be that strong, explosive ram for the catch weapon. But like you said, we now this offense now has the the ability and the weapons to kind of run the offense exactly way it was kind of built to run. Yeah, and that was the thing I think I had some criticism for the GM before because it felt like that they kind of intended to build some of the team, but they did it through the draft. It didn't end up working out as well. Um, clearly, it's taken a little while. Last year, we finally got to see you know Kyler's explosiveness in the passing game with the idea of spreading teams out, um, having one-on-one matchups, and then trusting your players to make plays. Um, that was something we saw where they would hit on A.J. Green early in the season. Um 
where, you know, maybe it'd be third and one and Kyler would look and be like, all right, we can pick up this down by rushing if we want to with James Conner in the backfield. Let's go ahead and take that deep shot. And it seemed like early in the season, teams weren't as prepared to see, you know, an older A.J. Green with that one-on-one matchup against a smaller corner. They adjusted and were able to see, I think, some of that later in the season. And uh, obviously not having Hopkins essentially kind of pushed them into more of that mold. But it'll be interesting to see as I think that it's taken a bit of time to get to this spot. But at least you can finally say that, you know, the air raid offense, we saw enough evidence to prove that it's able to work and be productive. Um, we've got talent now, and there's even more, I would say, talent that they've had than ever before because – um, even with Christian Kirk departing for the Jaguars, there was at least opportunities where a lot of the times we saw his production, it would kind of come in almost the design slot fade routes or being able to kind of as a result of, you know, trying to manipulate or move the defense around. A lot of it was deep being able to hopefully slide Rondale more into that type of a role and see him downfield, which is something we haven't seen from him on tape. We've seen some attempts, but that will be something that we can find out if Arizona is able to produce and perform, especially since, like you said, um, it's going to be a very critical year. And here's going to be an interesting kind of question to throw back before we move on to the rest of Arizona's picks. But I have wondered if the Cardinals and you look at how other teams have responded to their star receivers. You saw Devonte Adams traded away this offseason. You saw Tyreek Hill traded away. Teams did not want to have to pay like $30 million a year for a wide receiver. One sent them to teams that wanted to have that type of an impact. Part of me has wondered if the Cardinals, I think it was Bill Barnwell, I believe, who brought this up and talked about how he believed maybe Arizona is going to have to pay Hollywood Brown like $20 million a year. Is that going to be like too much you're having to pay? And even with all of the other areas, you're also still paying DeAndre Hopkins. So he wondered, do you trade for this guy for two years? His stats blow up with Kyler Murray. You trade him away. I've wondered if you look at the 29-year-old DeAndre Hopkins, the six-game suspension, some of the health areas, I've wondered if the Hollywood move is potentially a long-term replacement for Hopkins, getting some picks back, and then maybe drafting another X to replace him as a possibility just to kind of manage that. It's It would not be something I think would be optimal, but it also depends because as we, all, we haven't seen DeAndre Hopkins essentially since last year um, where he still seemed to return to a dominant play, but... It went from, I think, A.J. Green during the season said it best. He said, and Hop doesn't miss games, and we've seen him now miss almost the course of an entire season. I know some Cardinals fans, at least for the most part, may not like to hear that because you're hoping you have a Hall of Fame superstar caliber receiver on your team for a long period of time. Could this move signify a little bit more, perhaps, that Arizona, with Kyler coming under contract, may be ready to move off of Hopkins, and this Hollywood Brown would be replacing him, potentially, as the top option for the team? Hey. Man, that's such a great question because I've had the thought in that realm, not fully uh, of that stature, but to be honest with you, I would not be fully against it. And and it's mainly because you think about a team that wants to build around their quarterback, a team that maybe they feel like, hey, we're in a win now mode and different things of that nature that look at next year's draft. I'm be honest with you. It's a it, like it's a really good class at receiver and it's a lot of different body types, different skill sets, you know, from Jackson Smith and Jigba at Ohio state to Keishon Boutte at LSU and Jordan Addison, who just transferred to USC. Um, you know, a lot of different guys, man. Um, you know, young kid over in at the university of Tennessee, I'm slipping his mind, his name right now, but he's a big body guy. Like that, you know, uh, Jermaine Burton at Alabama, uh, Ty- Tyler Harrow that just transferred from Louisville to Alabama. So 
there's going to be a lot of different playmakers at the receiver position. And that's why I feel like team, I've, I've been saying this for like the past couple of years, the seven on seven at the lower level, starting at the in middle school, high school, these kids going to these passing leagues and playing seven on seven so much, working with trainers so early. And then they get into college and it's like, I'm not surprised this kid is a freshman had 20, 20 uh, touchdown receptions and over 1500 receiving yards. And it was a Belitnikov award winner because they're coming in more prepared. So, and then they're coming more prepared to college. They stay, you know, they're in college three, four years. They're coming in really prepared for the NFL also. So it's all about, you know, you use them. So I would not be surprised. Like I said, there's been a lot of things going on with D-Hop. So if they walk into this offseason, like, because of what they do have, what the two years left on Hollywood's deal, they don't have to pay him right away. And you don't have to actually trade Hop right away. But you could trade him next offseason. So there's definitely going to be something to watch. His return to the offense, and if he can stay healthy after that, will be very very key on how everything progresses. Right. They could theoretically also next off season, just add on an extension, move some of the money back for the most part, get that cap number down to 15 million Hollywood's then for th- add some voided years and all that yeah. type of stuff. Yeah. Hollywood's then Hollywood would then be on 13 million, of course, in his fifth year option by next year. So then the idea behind some of that is okay. Well, if he performs well, do you try to then knock that cap number down? Like there's different ways that you can be able to manage. I think what it does depend on ultimately is that the player has to be performing at a level that's almost worth the contract that you're doling out because some teams don't feel like that players are worth those numbers, even with the cap moving up because of, like you said, the, you know, a player like a Jordan Addison is also representative of how the league is shifting and changing. I think it's approach to like he's six foot, maybe 170 pounds soaking wet, similar to Devonta Smith. And he's a guy that could very well be a first round pick because of how the league is shifting and changing where you don't know, you don't have to be, you know, this six to two, 25 pound beast of a receiver to go in the top 10 and offenses have shifted away from run the football and then you know take that kind of like one-on-one shot to the outside for a, a megatron or for one of those larger type of michael irvin receivers back in the day um i will say this that is also interesting though because the cardinals have kind of seen similar areas before of where if they've had talent that gets to age 30 um, I think back to Calais Campbell, who they let walk and had three of his most productive seasons. Maybe it was a bit better fit in the 4-3 um, instead of the 3-4 Arizona was running as part of that. But we've also seen, like he said, just simply giving away a player, trading away that pick, you still have to get stuff back for it as far as for the talent for the most part. And so I think, like you said, it'd be very interesting when Hopkins comes back, if he gets back straight to form, shows that there's not going to be any sort of drop-off, at least for the foreseeable future. I think that it'll be one of the areas where, like you said, it's one of those spots where you'll have to try to figure out how best to manage it. It's tough but we've seen it already as a league trend if they decide to trade him away anyway it may not be as surprising and some of that also is the cardinals in round two um, it's funny i actually remember we went back to text messages at least with the site manager seth cox uh, a few other people we're like what were the top needs that the cardinals had going into the offseason we said all right it's going to be they need another number two wide receiver. They need an edge rusher. And we actually had tight end on that list because the Cardinals, both their tight ends were free agents. Now, obviously, they're bringing Max Williams back, and they've gone and essentially brought back Zach Ertz for a 10-year, almost $10 million a year each for the most part, kind of maybe that last big deal as he's age 31. Um, they then go out and instead of going after a pass rusher, instead of you know trying to bring in 
Um, they obviously trust James Conner to kind of be the guy to tote the rock for them for the most part. And instead of going after even a cornerback, they go after and take the top tight end of the board, Trey McBride, out of Colorado State, uh, a tight end who had probably some of the most passing game production we've seen, uh, interestingly enough, since Jason Morrow came out. Uh, of Texas Tech being kind of the guy through that offense, being able to produce in the passing game. And he's not been a slouch in the run blocking game either. Um, there's definitely a lot of upside. He's not necessarily the exact type that you would have as far as being that late first round tight end. Like he's 6'3", a little bit light, maybe at about 250 versus kind of that 6'6", 265 and athletic type of approach that teams love to have. Um, but it was interesting as people were kind of wondering, is this more of a luxury pick? Now, the Cardinals may have been sniped on one of the offensive linemen they were looking at. We can talk about how that's going to look in 2023. But this felt like it was an interesting move because it says two things, I think, to me. One, Max Williams' health may not be guaranteed, and he's, you know, 30 as well. Like, the Cardinals don't really have a long-term solution at tight end heading into this draft and probably needed to add a body somewhere no matter what. But what this also does, I think, is signify a potential change in the passing game and also a dedication to ensuring, hey, Kyler, like, if we have to move on from Hopkins, you're not going to be locking in targets next year. If Zach Ertz and the age starts to get to him, we've got a person who's ready to fill in. It seems like they're actually, for the first time in perhaps Arizona Cardinals history, making a huge push for a tight end you feel very positive about that as long as he can stay healthy, seems to check almost all the boxes you'd want in a starting TE. No, for sure. And I, I saw him, I saw Trey McBride down at the Senior Bowl, and he's he's a strong kid. He, and he's really competitive in the run game, which would definitely help when they go to those 12 personnel um, with the two tight end looks with him and most likely Zach Ertz. Um, but also just thinking about his ability in the seam as a receiver, they could detach him from the line of scrimmage, similar to Zach Ertz, and put him in the slot and get him matched up on some of these safeties and linebackers. And his he may have the best hands at the tight end position in this class. Is he the best separator in creating separation away from coverage? No. He was a little stiff in his hips. Um, he's not the most explosive athlete, but he's functional, and he gets the job done. And then, again, think about the space. Like you said, we talked about earlier. Three levels of the offense, three hitting all three levels of the defense, right? The you know Hollywood Brown and Rondell Moore have the speed that's interchangeable, where either one of them can go to the third level, or they can drop down to the second intermediate level, having DeAndre Hopkins and AJ Green that could play that deep intermediate as well, and then have and same thing with Rondell Moore playing that underneath, but that type of spacing speed size on the outs at the premier positions at receiver mm -hmm. then opens these tight ends up to one-on-one -on -one, and not just one-on-one, -on -one, but when teams want to drop into zone, these are the type of guys where him and Zach Ertz, McBride and Zach Ertz can both sit in the zones and then get you yards after contact or after catch as well. Right. That was one of the main things I saw from him. Six four two sixty. Like he's got the size, he's got the build and he's got the ball skills to, to not just, yeah, I know I'm not going to always pull away from everyone, but I can still put my body like a power forward, post a guy up, and, t and catch the ball up above my head. We always talk about helmet or, higher than, helmet or higher in certain passing situations. He's a guy that can go higher, use his length in his arms, use his catch radius, and his big, strong hands to snatch the ball out of the, area, out of the um, air and, and really play, above, play away from his frame. And that's a big thing. And I think him and Zach Ertz... Mm -hmm. I think pairing him with Zach Ertz is, is Zach Ertz has a chance to teach him a lot as a professional tight end 
especially in the passing game, knowing how to read the leverages, knowing where guys may drop off at in zone, uh, how to flash and show yourself to your quarterback quick enough, and and basically find that trust. So a lot of people, when when the when the offense had Dan, Dan Arnold um, back in, what was it, 2020, uh, 2019, 2020, I believe. Yep, both those and years, yep. He he just never he never fully popped, and and it seemed like there was a little bit of a trust thing with him and Kyler, but then you saw you know before Max Williams tore his ACL and had the, had the had the injury, Kyler trusted Max, and Max isn't some super uber athletic, tremendous route runner. He's a gritty, lunch pale, hard hat type of guy that's going to block his butt off and then get into his routes and provide a big catchable option for his quarterback. And Kyler loved him. It's, yeah. and, it, and you could tell it kind of it bothered him when Max went down. Then they bring in Zach Ertz, and he learned Zach Ertz really quick. He trusted Zach Ertz quickly. I think they're, you're going to see that, where not only that, but Trey McBride can also play some H-back. If they want to yes. pull him off the ball, off the line, play him at H-back, they can go to two. They can go to uh, 12 personnel traditionally with having Max and Ertz on the field or Max and McBride in line on the at the tight ends and then you can sub, sub by the receiver and put Zach Ertz yeah. as a as a big slot and it creates yeah. or a give him of, a break he's 31 yeah, you break. could give yeah, him he, yeah <laughs> he may need some of those during the season but it's, it gives you a lot of flexibility and creativity when, in terms of your sets which is something we're hoping to see more of from Clifton Right, and with Ertz has been one of the smartest players in the game, I think, at least when you watch him work over the middle. He earned Kyler Murray's trust very quickly, I think, because, like you said, it wasn't that he needed to necessarily um, be an elite separator, but he just needed to separate more than the guy who was covering him. And I think that's something that with McBride, when I looked at him and saw where a lot of the strengths were, it came down to his hands, like you talked about, like catching great catch radius, being able to move the ball away from his body, and also just the contact balance. Like guys would hit him, and he'd be able to pick up yards after catch. That's something we've seen from Max Williams in the past, and we saw the tight end in the offense. Cliff Kingsbury finally seemed ready to uh, embrace the idea of being able to have a tight end as a functional part. We saw how Max Williams, before he got hurt, he was on pace for about 650 yards or so, and at least about three or four touchdowns that would have been his career best. <laughs> like he had never ever been close to those numbers before. Ertz comes in and ends up hitting those numbers and essentially has one of the best Cardinal seasons we've seen from a tight end. And he only played in like 12 games or so. And I think that, like you said, the hard part with Ertz was because you needed to have that pass receiver as far as with DeAndre Hopkins out there, had to get him out there more often. And he's never been one of those guys that like you feel like is featured in his blocking. Um, being able to have someone like a Trey McBride who can come in that, like you said, could play H-back, would be able to be that inline tight end, or who could be able to move and flex into the, you know, the Y of being able to do that. Uh, I believe Cliff and Kaim on the Cards flight plan talked about disguising their offense a bit more. Um, I wonder if we don't see a bit more 12 and 11 personnel as a result because the Cardinals having that tight end flexibility, being able to say, hey, if we want to do a 10 personnel type of look for the most part, but really we can then run the ball with 11 personnel, knowing that we'll have an extra blocker with a tight end. Suddenly you're looking at being able to, instead of just saying we've got to thin out the defense, we can now actually be able to use a bit more creativity 
And I guess, like we said, open the playbook up a bit more, which currently what we've seen with Arizona, it feels like that we've seen success with the air raid, but we've seen them not use all of the concepts that every NFL team is using with bootlegs from under center, being able to have some of these different power areas that we've talked about where we've seen it in times from the Cardinals, but it's been more of a, not a staple of their offense. And I think that Trey McBride very much could end up being an indication of an offensive mindset change for Arizona. And if it's not, then that will be definitely something we can look at and continue to critique Cliff Kingsbury for, for kind of having all the pieces he needs to be able to kind of bring more of that into his offense. And then just maybe faulting back to what he's more comfortable with, at least if we see more of that or struggles without Hopkins on the field, that will probably be a good indication for some of him and the offense's long-term success. Absolutely. It's it's a lot. It's a this offense has a lot of potential um, now with the type of weapons that he has been uh, assembling around Kyler. But now it's just all about, you know, just kind of going on the field, getting that camaraderie, getting that timing and everything down when we get into mini camps and training camp and going into preseason in the season. Yeah, and they've got depth in case of injury, which is something that they didn't have last year. Let's go and talk about at least the edge rushers. Now, I think Arizona in this regard, this is probably the most interesting area. Um, They didn't really go out and address cornerback like many people looked at and saw that as a need with having, you know, the oldest corner that they have on the roster right now essentially is Byron Murphy, who's going into the fourth and final year of his rookie deal. Um, they add Jeff Gladney, who at least, you know, came off of, you know, some off-field issues, has gotten those since ironed out. It's under a two-year deal with Arizona, so that at least seemed to be set for the most part as far as starting corners, but they were not at all really set at edge rush. Right now you've got Marcus Golden as your prime edge rusher. You've got J.J. Watt coming back that will probably have a lot more help from the interior. Arizona goes out and gets two guys who essentially are almost in a lot of cases the opposite of player types. They get a MyJ Sanders, didn't have the production, but showed off the explosiveness, fits maybe more of the Hassan Reddick smaller uh, mold. Now, he did, of course, you know, weigh in at 240, apparently during his pro day was 225 at the Combine. So there are going to be probably a little bit less questions about just the weight, but he's still a bit of a smaller guy, shows explosiveness, doesn't have as much of the sack production. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side, the first player they took, Cam Thomas, who was one of my, I really love that pick and value in the third round because he not just excelled at being able to get to the quarterback using most of the edge, but also was great against the run, being able to get tackles for loss, being able to be stout in the run game, which is something that Arizona's linebackers, like it's, you know, no offense to Chandler Jones and Marcus Golden, but they've really have not had guys who were stout against the run as a strength on the edge for the last few years. And in Vance Joseph's scheme, teams have kind of played on that a little bit by running right at those players, and it's cost the Cardinals in a lot of clutch games that they've had, especially down the stretch when teams are beat up and are running the ball a lot more during those winter seasons. What were your thoughts on the Cardinals kind of, you know, maybe not throwing darts at the wall, but at least going out and addressing their edge need just maybe in a way of, picking one of those players you would like more? Are they both going to be interchangeable? Or is this going to be a spot where 2023 comes around and Arizona fans are clamoring for the team to either trade for or sign a pass rusher just because the impact Chandler Jones had is no longer with the team and it's sorely lacking? Uh, it, these were, these two selections were like polar opposite. You know, as you talked about, Maje Sanders is a long, uh, linear, more slim, bendy type of rusher that if he does play at 240, 245, he's tough. He's a tough guy. Like since he runs a three, three, five kind of stack defense and he at times was playing five tech and four. I 
at 235, 40 pounds against interior offensive linemen. And he had, at times he was holding his own against the run game. And then you see him against those thoroughbreds in Alabama who are 320, 330 pounds. And it was just like, he's outmatched. So it's like, now you get to move him into more of a natural position and allow him to develop as a true, pure edge rusher. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how that goes. I think he's more of a DPR than anything early on uh, coming in on those, you know, use them as fresh legs, allow him to come in on those third and longs and just get after uh, get after quarterbacks and put pressure because I remember he has he had a funny quote when we were at the Senior Bowl um, when he was he, they we asked about him facing off with Daniel Falele the big six foot eight six foot nine three hundred eighty pound tackle from Minnesota University of Minnesota is like, you know how do you plan on you know dealing with him he was like catch me if you can. And that was that was his response to that to, to dealing with Falele. He's like, catch me if you can. So, you know, in twenty twenty one, his tape was okay. Twenty twenty is when I was more impressive with more impressive with him as a pass rusher. Uh, his his first step quickness and explosiveness off the ball and his ability to time snap. So I want to see more of that going forward. Playing a, a no, more natural outside uh, edge rusher and outside linebacker situation, but I definitely think it's going to be a DPR for Cam Thomas. You know, being what, six foot, I mean, six foot, six foot five, 270. He's more of a, he, like, from a build and even just play style. He's more of a 4 3 defensive end than anything. So that's mm-hmm. what shocked me when they made the selection. I was like, okay. Um, so then what that told me was like, okay, is he someone that's a candidate to take over and pull Zach Allen off the field on those third down situations? Mm. Take him inside alongside JJ Watt. And JJ Watt is, would be a tremendous mentor to him as well. Uh, JJ, he can pair with JJ as, as, as those three kind of four eye techniques on pass rush situations, kick him inside as a cell package rusher. But he, like you talked about, his ability to be physical and aggressive at the point of attack in the running game, he can stand up. I wouldn't mind him standing up on the edges on first and second down to go ahead and set hard edges, force running backs back inside into the teeth of the defense with all the help. Because like you said, having, uh, especially with Chandler Jones, he was not the most dominant edge, you know, presence against the run. So now you, 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 you lose his pass rush, but you kind of almost erase that big weakness that he had in this game. Cause now teams can't just point him out or point, you know, someone else like that's a smaller build and say, we're going to just run the ball at him. Can right. comes to step in and help you in the run game, and like I said, kick him inside. Um, you could def. I'm camp is going to be really interesting for him because I want to see how he rushes from an outside standpoint because his motor, his hand counters, his physicality, his length. Uh, he has a good first step. There were a lot of. I think it was Dan Brugler. Like it was a lot of a lot of analysts that called him the Mountain West Aiden Hutchinson. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, and when you hear that, and this is, Aiden was the second overall pick in the draft. He was, to a lot of people, not mine, but to a lot of people, he was the best player in the draft, right? So to get that Mountain West version of that, that's that's really interesting, and that's really exciting. So I'm ex- I'm excited to see how, I'm not the big Van, I'm not the biggest Van Joseph, uh, Vance Joseph fan um, in terms of defensive play calling. Never really have been. Um, I didn't like the way he used Isaiah Simmons or Zayvon Collins the past couple years, um, especially two players that needed reps at a solid, specific position to gain 
that mental aptitude to take that next step in their development. Um, so I'm interested to see how he used Cam Thomas early on, especially in, in training camp when the pads come on. It's like, hey, pads are popping. We're live. We're going 100, 100 miles per hour every rep. We're giving 100%. I want to see how Cam Thomas rushes from the outside and then kick him inside and see how well he does paired up with J.J. Watt because then that allows you to – you got a guy – we'll talk about him later, later in Jesse Lucetta, but, you know, you have other guys that can step on the edge, think about throwing Maggie Sanders out there, and a potential just a, from a three-man look, you have J.J., Cam, and Maggie, and then you could put whoever it is, Golden or whoever – as um, Dennis Gardeck, someone else at the, as the other opposite edge rusher, and you may have something there. Right. And I, I think that's something that you mentioned about with the um, uh, with kind of some of like the 4-3 and comparisons, at least with Cam Thomas. Part of me looks at him, and I think this is something Emery Hunt even talked about, where he had him as probably his favorite of the five-tech position, which would be more of that interior mm-hmm. defensive end. Kind of what a lot of what we've seen as far as with J.J. Watt is that he's not playing that position or role with the Cardinals. He's playing more of that 4-3 kind of defensive tackle, you know, get up the middle, get up the gut. Um, type of a player. I don't know if you can say that necessarily that's Cam Thomas's strength. I think it'd be more of when you look at Zach Allen, who's lined up next to J.J. Watt, being able to kind of be man who could um, you know stop the run. It'll be interesting if they put him into more of that tweener type of role where it's like outside inside because mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where he is currently. Either like someone said, you know, if you're 260, you're finally heavy enough to be able to stop the run. But with how the NFL has gone, you almost kind of want to have some of those speedier edge rushers at times and kind of will end up, you know, rotating through your defensive line if, as best. I'll be curious if he's going to be starting off year one, kind of on as an edge rusher, learning how to do that, maybe taking the place on the opposite side where you could have, you know, a golden, a Watts, uh, being able to have him maybe even rotate in depending on the situation with Sanders. And then maybe year two, we end up seeing, all right, Zach Allen, he had his last year of his deal. Instead of paying him to stay, they slide Cam Thomas into that type of a five-tech role, have him gain maybe 20 pounds or so. And suddenly you're going to have a guy who's maybe a little bit lighter than that 300-pounders that you'd need, but he doesn't need to be a nose tackle in that role. Just being able to have the ability to you know, be a five-tech, stop the run, and then if J.J. Watt's not on your team, being able on third down to slide into kind of that upfield, just go get after the quarterback son type of a deal, that will be something I could see being the case for it, which is part of where I like the value for this of Arizona in the third round. I think that he's a guy who probably fits, like you said, that 4-3 DE second round grade I think a lot of people would have given. Coming out of a small school, you bump down a little bit, whereas what I think my J tells me is that the Cardinals may be seeing him as a guy that will be involved if they do blitz quite a bit. And I think that with Vance Joseph's defense, the concerns I've always usually had have been in the run game and tendencies at times when there is weakness to simply just get, all right, we're going to play a soft zone back behind here, just kind of bend, but try not to break. And as a result, you've seen teams be able to kind of pick them apart. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo throwing for 400 yards twice, I think stands out for that. Whereas with the Cardinals, what we've seen, I think this year without Chandler Jones, they essentially turned into a blitzing team that was able to line up guys in the a gaps and then bring quite a bit of speed off of the edge. Um, I think if there's areas this year, we could see them utilize, you know, 
Buda Baker and Byron Murphy, for the most part, with some of them have been featured in blitzing. We've seen how Isaiah Simmons has been able to blitz, and you're going to be getting a full season now from another athletic freak in um, the likes of Zayvon Collins in the middle. If you can bring my Jay as one of those guys who just has to get after the quarterback in these type of blitzes where you've got, you know, six, seven guys on the line, you know, my Jay is going to be the one who's just told to run after the quarterback, like you said, in that designated pass rush role. I think that that's almost a win now type of move. And then you hope to kind of develop maybe into that Hassan Reddick bandit role long term where, hey, we know that he's been solid and uh, he's just not going to ever maybe be that um, dynamic type of pass rusher. But if he can be a guy that ends up getting, you know, eight or nine sacks, you know, a season and is primarily featured in that spot, then that would be probably, I think, a best case scenario for him. And it is interesting. Um we talked about 2020 and 2021 production. He did say that coaches had him move from the edge rushing role to more of a four I five tech type of role where he said, basically said, I was just the decoy. Like my entire role for the most part was not necessarily to rush the passer, but to kind of act like you're rushing the passer and then be able to be in more of a read and react type of role, particularly paying attention to their run game. He still was able to get sacks and pressure. I think the Alabama game from this past year where, you know, despite being, you know, at that light size of being able to move some of those larger linemen that you see on tape, um, it shows I think that it, best Arizona could hopefully get a starter in the long term, at least for the most part. You're hoping you get one or two years of a guy who, if you're having to adjust, um, is able to get some at least production for the most part and get some pressure on quarterbacks is I do think Vance Joseph is going to be very highly evaluated this season because he's going to have to schematically find a way to deal with the run game that's plagued the Cardinals, be able to now also manufacture a pass rush without Chandler Jones, which he did before, but it seemed like it was definitely down the 2020 stretch at the cost of being able to get off the field. So um, any other last thoughts before we move on to a huge drop off to day three? (laughs) (laughs) It was a huge drop off. Oh, no kidding. They went all the way to the sixth round, giving up a fourth round pick to be able to go and get Marco Wilson, who started for an entire year and may never be a cornerback one. But if he can be a solid CB2, you probably will take that if you're Arizona. They also went and got Zach Ertz, who ended up essentially now as part of their future moving forward, is part of their now being able to also um, teach their upcoming um, tight end. And you've got a savvy veteran who... Now doesn't have to worry as much about blocking. You'll be able to use him. And hopefully when Hopkins comes back, you'll be able to have multiple options. And you've got some depth for him now, too, because Cardinals passing attack. My goodness. It basically went through him and deep shots to Christian Kirk and A.J. Green. And that was not a sustainable offense, as we saw to to close the year. Uh, Let's talk about the first thing the Cardinals did when they came back with after all of that time and all that waiting. They go out and get a running back. Uh, So this is the running back Keontae Ingram, who spent time at multiple different teams. He ended up finishing his career at USC, uh, but he started out playing at Texas, uh, ends up with, for the most part, not really getting a ton of carries, but showed off at least the ability at about 215, maybe now 220, to be able to be decent in the passing game, to be able to get, um, you know, probably averaged about a little bit under or just about five yards uh, per rush. It's one of those spots that was interesting to see that this is who the Cardinals went because it's a guy that I think a lot of people who are film watchers at least really liked as a kind of a sleeper pick. What's interesting is kind of putting his place in the team now that the team has signed Daryl Williams. It feels almost like this is their big back type of replacement in case James Conner goes down. And as we've seen with James Conner in the past, injuries have been a concern. Um, It'll be interesting to see. Do you think that he's got any higher upside than simply just being like, you know, your third down back or even potentially, you know, pushing someone like an Eno Benjamin or a Jonathan Ward off of the roster. 
I, I do. I actually do. I'm, I'm a fan of, of, of Keontae Ingram. And you, you look at his build, he's got the prototypical size, the height, the weight. But he's got he's very decisive. He's got good patience, good vision. And he is he has very quick foot uh, footwork when it turns down to, I you know, identifying leverage as a, as a running back, finding the hole, planting that outside or inside foot and getting up field. And he does it quickly. And you think about the amount of inside zone and split zone that they run in this air raid offense. And that's just kind of prevalent in most offenses nowadays in the NFL. The inside zone and split zone action is so frequent. Like, so now you, you put that, you put this kid in the backfield. He gives you more, to me, he gives you more juice and explosiveness than a James Conner does. But he still has the ability to bang between the tackles and, and use his frame as an advantage as well. So I think, to be honest with you, I, I think he he may not start out as that RB2. I think that'll probably be Daryl Williams or, you know, Benjamin, if anything. But I think I would not be surprised if he finished the season um, closer to that RB2 type of situation. And if James Conner goes down, Daryl Williams, who is a, a talented kind of do-it-all do type of running back, he he's going to be able to fill in admirably. But I think Keontae Ingram has that type of frame and physicality and running style, as well as the explosiveness he has as well, uh, to kind of jump him. You know, So I'm, I'm excited to see what he looks like in camp in the preseason. Yeah, uh, one of the things that stands out to me also that's really interesting with Ingram is – you know, you know, Benjamin was a seventh round pick, and I think that's what's fascinating, at least to look at with, you know, a lot of people who I think are local in the Arizona area just maybe have a little bit of more ASU bias for the most part, I think, can <laughs> pop up. But when you're talking about with like the type of juice of the area, like you're right about in the fact that when you look as far as how it went out, you know, James Conner, you know, he would end up putting the four sixes for his 40 yard dash. I think we saw a similar prospect out of BYU this year in Tyler Algier. We yep. didn't even see as far as with the likes of um, Daryl Williams. He didn't even have a ton of juice, but he made his name as kind of a pass catcher in that air raid offense with Patrick Mahomes, kind of that air raid slash Andy Reid hybrid role. Uh, what's interesting is that Ingram's faster than both of them, and he's bigger, uh, as big as both of those players. It'll be also a spot where if Arizona ends up getting in where they have to use running back three and if there's not as much production, you know, you can wonder if this is one of those guys who um, ends up being, you know, maybe not the starter in the future, but it might be one of those players if he can be a long term running back two, because I think ultimately you have to have kind of a high end top tier running back one as far as athleticism goes like. You know, you look at how the Colts with Jonathan Taylor, even the move up the Jets made for Brees Hall. There's kind of a sweet spot in where the star running backs are kind of been found. Like they've been maybe devalued a little too much in some cases, I think. But teams are also taking them in some of these spots and you're seeing them get three to four great years of production. And then um, dealing with kind of figuring out the contract has been the, the tough part. I think it'll be a great signal heading into next year, at least. If the Cardinals get enough of a gem from Ingram, we may not see them spend an early-round draft pick on adding in maybe that kind of future number one running back to either supplant James Conner someday or pass up since, you know, it is a spot with the running back in the NFL. They just don't have a lot of time that they're um, going to last. So right. uh, let's, let's go ahead and kind of move on with the talking about the next player, at least for the most part, the Cardinals would have um, selected. And I thought this was kind of an interesting selection too, because when you're looking at what Arizona kind of was targeting um, with being able to, you know, we talked about how they didn't really get an offensive lineman before 
when they were going through the rest of their picks, they kind of didn't take one early and they went for tight end instead as far as didn't seem like they wanted to reach on an offensive lineman. They get a guy in Lasita Smith, who I think is very interesting with his profile coming out of Virginia Tech because he is a very athletic guy, has all of the different areas that you see for the most part. He played tackle and was at about 6'3", 315. Biggest reason why he's there in the sixth round, of course, arms are a little bit shorter than usual. So that was one of the things, at least, that you look at him. It'll be interesting to see between him and then we can talk about the Cardinals' other pick here. This is probably one of the few picks that I feel like that every year there's a offensive lineman on day three or two that maybe doesn't necessarily grab a starting role, but is able to kind of step in at least and either be able to fill in a depth spot or long-term eventually is able to get up to that spot. Like there's fifth rounders, sixth rounders. Like there's always seems to be one of those guys. Do you think he's got a shot to be one of those players for the cards? I do. Uh, you talk about his athleticism. He originally came to Virginia Tech to play tight end. Uh, you know, he made the switch to offensive line in, in like 2017 and eventually found his home at left guard. Like I said, that that's where the, the short arms kind of come into play is like, you know, you can't play on, they, they, especially in the NFL. They don't trust you on the outside if you have super short arms, but the inside where it's condensed space, he's good. He's like I said, good athlete, uh, functional strength. He, he has good knee bend and ankle flexion. Uh, he's going to be somebody that that's really, he's really competitive and aggressive. Um, and, and then he fits what this offense is, especially in the run game. It's a zone-based offense um, in terms of the running scheme. So he fits that as well. And, and this is a guy, you know, the offensive line was a big concern for everyone, right? Especially the guard spot. No one wanted to see any more of Max Garcia in 2022 because it, re- it was an eyesore. It's really frustrating watching him try to protect Kyler Murray. And you could tell Kyler Murray wasn't comfortable with him at guard or center. So having Rodney Hudson return, you 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 still have Justin Pugh at the left guard situation, and then bringing in Will Hernandez to more than likely start at right guard, reuniting him with his former offensive line coach from college when he was you know the reason why he was drafted in the second round. He's a physical, physical, physically imposing guy, very strong, um, and you just gotta see him get back to that lateral movement that he's that he showcased coming out of college, but. This allows Lasita Smith to sit and marinate for at least a year. And I think with him and, you know, you mentioned the other pick uh, where we have in Marquise Haynes from Oklahoma, you got two developmental guards. And you have a situation where you kind of already have your two veterans starting with, um, you know, with Hernandez at the right guard and Pew at the left. And it's like, okay, now we're in a situation where, Lasidis and, and and Marquise Haynes can both sit, let the offensive line coach continue to work with them in terms of stick technique, punch timing, you know, different things like that, being knowing when to be aggressive and how to use their aggress their aggression in the run game and even at pass pro, uh finding work and helping, you know, helping your guys out when they leave you unblocked and you're sitting and dropping back and hey, let me go chip this 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 edge rusher who's trying to work back inside on on Kelvin Beecham and Let's really get that, build that trust for uh, Kyler Murray going forward. But if you can take these two young guys who are going to be cheap contracts and usher them into the starting lineup in 2023, or if Will Hernandez shows that he can be the guy at right guard, you can extend him for, you can re-sign him for a year or two, see how that works out, but still keep those young guys on the roster. 
it gives you some flexibility offensively on, on, on the front lines. And that's something that was really, really big. Cause at the end of the day, you need talent, but you, you need talent starting. But we, as we talked about with the receiver and the weapons, what we saw last year on guys that hurt, you need talented depth. And now I think with the offensive line, that is something that they have now with Lucida Smith and Marquise Haynes. Right. Uh, what's interesting also is if the biggest knock a lot of people had on Smith, like you said, was kind of the shorter arms. What's interesting is his arms, at least as far as that goes, it's not like they're 30 inch arms for the most part. Or we're talking about like, you know, the Tyler Linderbaum, but at 31 and seven eights, it's just under essentially like what Justin Pugh's was. And yeah. while Pugh was a first round pick, at least there's, I think a lot of areas for the most part of, like you said, like there's upside with some of that athleticism where I think you could have potential starting guard over here in the future. It'd be one of those type of sleeper areas. Um, he also is just nasty. As far as when you're watching the place, he's yes. got heavy hands that you say, or like, but at the same time, I think it's violent hands is a better way to put it mm. where you're aggressive. At least you're powerful in the run game. Uh, if the Cardinals future, at least, and ends up being where they're able to move, like you said, from Justin Smith to Will Hernandez underneath his offensive line coach has kind of this rebirth. And you're able to then slide Lasita Smith in on the right side for the most part. Then you're essentially looking at, you know, a much better plan for that 2023 season, considering the fact that right now, you know, you've got two guys who have had multiple starts before under contract for next year. Not something that you'd want to be in for the most part. Um, being able to have one of those players hit would just be a boon. Uh, let's go. That was, oh, yeah. And to your point, which to your point about Hernandez and like you said, with both of them, what that will also give is just two just nasty physical demeanored guards on the interior that will do everything they can to protect the quarterback, but they're definitely going to get up field in the run game. And that's going to be big, especially if they can, if Cliff continues to emphasize the run game more going forward. Definitely agree there, at least. That's something that we're hoping for. Uh, talking the next pick, cornerback Chris Matthew, the biggest thing that stands out about him is going to be the athleticism that you see at a small school. Um, didn't have as far as a blazing 40 time, but did show a lot of explosiveness with the 40-inch vertical jump. Uh, was able to have a... Um, a lot of at least overall, not as much as far as ball production, but when you're talking about the type of players that are there, uh, being able to have a high wingspan, you know, he's got 80 inch arms. So you're like, okay, you take the long lengthy armed corner at six, two kind of is able to fit some of that profile. Don't necessarily look for starting corners at this rate. Your hope is that at least you can see some players kind of make their living on some special teams there for the most part. He's one of those players who I think the best bet I think that you're hoping for is if you can get a special teamer slash maybe a fourth corner who's at least adequate because of that explosive nature. Um, that's something I think at least that will be interesting because when it comes to these small school guys, you know, sometimes for every single dart you throw at that board, there's a miss because, all right, there's just, you have no idea how to project when they get to competition. There's a lot of players, at least in the NFL who go on day three and you can talk about it. You can't just build a team around star players. You have to be able to find guys who are going to be able to contribute. Do you think he's got a chance to be a contributor? Maybe not year one for the Cardinals, but potentially at least working his way in as we've seen a lot of their special core special teams players have been here now for four to five years. They did just pay Dennis Gardeck as one of those players. Um, what are your thoughts, at least if anything on Chris Matthew or Christian Matthew, the guy with two first names as uh, his Twitter account boasts? <laughs> no, I, I, he's one of those height, weight, speed prospects that you look, that you look for, especially late, um, you know, being six to uh, believe it was over 200 pounds, 
ex- you know, explosive athlete. Well, he's like 195, around 200. But like you talked about the 41.5-inch vert. Uh, he jumps to a 10-7 in the broad. But he has everything to be a press man corner. He's also, with his size, he can. he's a tackler as well. And he's somebody that doesn't mind tackling. That's what you really look for. So that speaks to his ability to transition and translate to special teams. Then when you think about, okay, well, if we want to go to a more man-in-your-face, physical, punch-you-in-the-mouth type of coverage, which for me personally, that's my style of, uh, of coverage, is being able to disrupt and, and, and maul receivers at the line of scrimmage, legally, of course, um, you know, no holding penalties and, you know, uh, you know, all that stuff. But just being able to be physical and throw off this timing, you, especially you think about what they have in, in L.A. with the Rams and the, the, the weapons they have in San Fran and especially weapons they have in Seattle. You want to be able to throw off that timing and allow that pass rush to get back there. He's a guy that can develop into that as well. He is an older rookie. Uh, 25 years old, because you know, uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of guys, even in, in the 2023 class, there's going to be some 24, 25 year old quarterbacks coming in because of the whole COVID situation, just kind of derailing things for certain prospects and certain college athletes. So he's somebody I'm intrigued about. I think he's going to be a, he could be a core special teamer, but he's extremely competitive. 15 pass breakups in 2021. Uh, he knows how to get the ball, hit, get his hands on the football, and just being able to to truly Use this size. Like, it's one thing to be that that size and to have that length. It's nothing to use it and know how to use it. And he knows how to use it. He may not have the highest upside. Like I said, he's 25. He may be a capped player in terms of ceiling. But at the same time, you need those glue guys, man. It's not just a term for basketball teams. It's a term for NFL, too. You need somebody that's gonna, that does not mind coming in, playing, you know, you know, playing aggressive and being physical, whether it's on special teams at corner, or heck, with his size and his athleticism and his ball skills, he could transition into a safety yeah. that plays more in the box against uh, not just as a run defender, but also against these talented tight ends. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of safeties, at least, let's go and talk about the next player on the list, Jesse Lucchetta, linebacker of Penn State. Obviously, we're getting near kind of the back end of everything that you'll have for the most part with the Cardinals. Um, this is a guy who I believe, I think he was taken at pick two, was it two fifty six or four? I have to remember at least for that, but I think he was the last pick the Cardinals made. He specifically, I think this is kind of weird to say it is versatile. Like that's his job. Yes. Like that's his thing. He is a versatile defender. He moved to edge rusher from inside linebacker for the most part. It's a high motor type of player. The biggest thing I think you look at is it's not like his athleticism is bad. Like you look at the player that he's been as far as, you know, having good wingspan, being able to be like, uh, you know, good vertical jump for the most part for some of the places. He's one of those players that kind of fits Arizona as far as, you know, you could kind of move him in and around. He has nothing but more or less than a relentless motor and an infectious personality. Uh, was a two-year yes. team captain, you know, and coming out of a big program like Penn State for the most part that just does a great job with those type of athletes. He's just not a very fluid type of player for the most part. It's not like he gets away from blockers very well. The kind of comp that I had for him was almost a second version of the Cardinals' Dennis Gardeck, who maybe there's one year where he just gets seven sacks or something like that, is always going to be present on special teams, is always going to have, like, that great type of work ethic for the most part. And it kind of is one of those things where it – Fitz is an Arizona player because it's, you know, they love having those hybrid athletic players. This is a hybrid player that fits the other type, which is just good guy to have around who's going to be able to go out there and make plays for the most part. 
Um, and maybe one of those hybrid rush linebackers, you know, the Ezekiel Turner is a guy who's on the Cardinals, um, him being able to kind of be a hybrid of Turner and Gardeck, if you can stick around for, you know, four or five years for the most part, making a living on special teams and occasionally, you know, getting into a game or two just for getting some juice, that would be kind of the upset. I think if he's able to hit that, that you'd love to see. Oh, absolutely. He's going to like, if they play him more early downs, he, he's going to really affect the run game. Um, because like I said, his 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 experience as the inside linebacker, stack linebacker, playing the edge. But then you think about his his I think defensively, his impact can be felt as a blitzer. He has a like I said, he has a relentless motor. He he knows how to use his leverage to where because he's 6'3, about 255. Um, he knows how to use his leverage and play underneath the pads of these bigger offensive linemen when he's on the edge and these bigger tight ends. Being able to get up, you know, uproot them and get out of there and, and make plays and set good edges in the run game. But with his explosiveness coming downhill, his aggressiveness, I was I was beside him um, at the Senior Bowl on the sideline. Um, and and I tell you, he's a leader. His his energy, like there was some reps where Trevor Penning was doing some things that that was pissing everybody defensively off, and he was one of those guys jawing from the sideline, like he was just. Hey, like letting them know, like you wait till I get back out there. You're not gonna do my guy like that. Like he's pumping everybody up. They have to, he's an emotional leader too. So he's somebody that's gonna bring that energy. He's super tough, super physical, and he's one of our draft legends at at, um, at TDN as well. Love, love everything about Jesse Lucetta. And for me, the reason why I love this pick so much, defensively getting feistier, being more physical, being more aggressive. But just being gritty and tough, that's how you play the run. That's how you stop the run game. You know, it's not just about having bodies. It's about having bodies that want to engage and come downhill. And Jesse Lucchetta is one of those guys that he will lead by example as a young as a young man in that, in that, in that locker room. He's going to come in, do what is asked of him, and he's going to do it to the best of his abilities. So if it's special teams early on, he'll do just that. He's going to be an A1 special teams guy. Then you see what you can get from him and where – He's best suited defensively. It, maybe that is walk him as an off-ball linebacker, walk him up to the line of scrimmage, rush him off the edge, rush him, you know, run some games, rush him inside into the A-gaps, and, and just create some mental chaos for blocking schemes. Fine. He's going to do a lot of different things for you. He's going to step in, and he's, he's not going to be afraid of the moment. And that's why I love about this young man. That's great. Let's move on to the last one that the Cardinals had as far as with their pick in Marquise Hayes, the guard of Oklahoma to talk about. Was a starter for multiple years, was fitting as far as for the size that you like to see, a 6'5", 318 pounds. Uh, has a lot longer arms than I think anyone expected. He's got a almost an 84-inch wingspan for the most part. Um he was very highly touted by Dane Brugler of The Athletic. He was his sixth overall rated interior offensive lineman. Uh, he really liked him a lot. The biggest thing I think that pops up is he's an older prospect. He's going to be 24 or so by the time the season starts. And you also look at his athleticism. Wasn't quite the same upside that we saw from someone like Alicita Smith. So there's a lot I think that's interesting with Hayes as far as when you look at the air raid or other spots. This would be the one where I think if you look at Lasitas and you look at the areas for where he 
excels, it was both the tape and as an athlete, with the only question being, you know, is his arm going to be something that's an issue with the longer-armed interior pass rushers? With Hayes, I think the question is going to be, is this one of those players who will be kind of stout and stalwart enough to get into, you know, either a starting spot or even maybe a backup spot? Or is this going to be a spot where the athleticism ends up being just something where it's not quite able to ever break that starting role? I've got it as a spot where I honestly am not sure. I'd love to get some of your take on it. It feels like it's one of those places where either we overthought it with him because of the athleticism in some of the places, and he ended up being just a guy who came out of the Big Ten, will fit really well on this team. And the tape shows a mauler in the run game for the most part. It shows, I think, a lot of toughness that the Cardinals were looking for in their interior offensive line. And I've been an advocate of, you know, Kyler, he's always going to have these, you know, uh, ability to run upfield or be able to get away from some of these edge rushes just because that's who he is. So getting that interior protection up front and giving him enough of a pocket and space, even if it's just you know getting windows or seeing over the line, is important. Yeah. Arizona went out and did that by trying to get these rough guys. What are your thoughts, at least on Hayes, as far as him being picked? For the, is this another type of player that we've got that upside similar to Lasita Smith, or is this going to be much more of kind of a, you know, hey, he's not maybe going to be a starter, but could he end up being one of those long-term backups? You know, I, I like the comparison at least to, um, you know, the guy who the Cardinals had starting at their offensive guard and even at the center position for a number of years in Max Garcia. Uh, you could see, obviously, when he was forced to start at right guard and then was taking on Aaron Donald one-on-one, he just wasn't able to take care of it for that one. And that's yeah. not something that, you know, you have that expectation that he has to do. Is Hayes going to be someone you see in that route, or is there more upside potentially for him with this last pick? Uh, well, Hayes, I, I think he is going to be more of a backup, especially early on. He's really raw with his uh, technique and fundamentals. Uh, he's got, you know, his footwork needs to, he, he needs to improve his footwork and um, contact balance and body control. Uh, in the, both the run and passing game, but he's so tough. He's extremely physical. Um, and, and just being able to use his hands properly, uh, you know, when you strike, your placement when you strike uh, is a big part of leveraging. So if he can, I think he's going to be somebody that they're going to look to work with. And I'll be honest, he's probably going to be, I, I could see him being a practice squad stash uh, draft and stash type of guy, put him on the practice squad, allow him to just quietly develop, right? To where he's working on his game, you know, and the coaches are, you know, he's he's taking it serious because he is a mauler. He, and crazy thing about it, he's more of a, to me, he was always more of a gap power scheme type of blocker. Right. So that's the same thing with Will Hernandez. He's the same thing. He's not really a zone-based type of blocker in the first place. So it's like, to me, you, but at the same time, you think about, Inside zone, inside zone tendencies are, to me, from from a running back standpoint, is very similar to, to power because um, it's a lot of double teams, climb to the second level, things of that nature. You know, handle your guy and and find the next man up. But uh, I think Haynes has the uh, the potential to sit quietly, develop, and become kind of a swing guard, kind of backup guy. Uh, I don't think his ceiling is extremely high, but he is someone that could. If he gets those those fundamental and technical things down and becomes technically sound to where then, okay, not only are you overwhelmingly strong, you can pummel and beat up interior D linemen. Now you have the technique to where it's like, okay, we're comfortable leaving you one-on-one with certain people, certain uh, certain rushers and defensive linemen. 
then it's like, okay, we can trust you. Kyler can trust you. You're going to help us greatly in the run game. And then you're going to sh- bring that physicality as well in the passing game. So he just got to fix those things. I think he, I would say at least for the for a year or two, I would see him as a practice squad type of guy with a chance to truly become a uh, backup to potential kind of spot starter. Yeah, definitely. And I, it was interesting. I know our site manager, Seth Cox, said he talked even a little bit to the Cardinals offensive line coach. And the big takeaway he had was, what do you think of the two rookie offensive linemen? And he came away saying, wow, they really like Will Hernandez. So that tells you like the expectations <laughs> that these guys have is not necessarily like for starting. Maybe there's areas for long term. But I think that's the case for this draft class as well is it's not like they went out and brought in tons of stars. I think that really the phrase I look at is solid contributors where Hollywood's intended yeah. to be your star and maybe you've got the potential if Trey McBride can turn into a Zach Ertz type you know that was something at least of he probably was maybe a bit more of a star just due to Philly now struggling to draft wide receivers so things had to go through him (laughs) but being able to be solid contributors I think is something that gets overlooked and it's not going to be that star-studded Jets draft class or the Ravens draft class or even what Philly managed to do with all of those first round draft picks so as we kind of wrap up today are there any other kind of last thoughts that you have at least with the Cardinals heading into this 2022 Um, I know we mentioned a little bit with the 2023 season obviously don't want to go too much into the draft we'll get you back on when it's time to preview that Uh, but any other thoughts for heading into this season because I felt torn as far as I feel the Cardinals are in a way until we can see what the offense looks like without Hopkins and with how the schedule is tougher this year I've got them in kind of this 7 to 11 win type of curve like you feel like they're too good to have a really bad or really down season I think that was something fans were concerned about heading into the 2021 year where you signed all these veteran guys that had had injury issues you kind of saw Kyler take enough of a step that you're like all right this is going to be a team that's not going to have a crushing loss as long as their quarterback is you know healthy and playing and we even saw Colton McCoy the cards were able to get by with Cliff being able to innovate some. So you feel that confident, but with them playing the AFC West, with how the NFC West may get, you know, depending on how Trey Lance does, even with Russell Wilson out of the picture, you got to play him this year. And you're playing perhaps the toughest division in football in the AFC West for the most part. It's not an easy schedule, but it's not like it's one of those schedules where you feel like it's impossible for the cards. I gave them about nine and eight with the potential to get 10 wins or 11 wins this year. What are some of your thoughts and what you see or what you'd like to see for Arizona as far as if their season could be a success or is this going to be maybe a bit of a step back from what we saw a year ago man i mean because i think it is what week is a week one we have kansas, kansas city, city kansas city at home i'm gonna tell you it, it's crazy and uh, of course you know for all the cardinals fans for revenge of the bird be on the lookout to see more from me now that i'm full-time with tdn i will have a lot more time on my hands to produce more written content for you guys um so it's going to, which I'll have like pre-game previews and everything like that coming up towards the season. I, I feel that is a game that everybody's going to count us out, but that's a game. It's the first game of the season. Week one is usually the most bonkers week of the NFL season. Just, that's the week where you're like, okay, these games are a lock. And then it's like, those are the teams that lose, right? So it's like, that is a game I think people will sleep on. But I, I feel that the, my main thing, Blake, because I'm looking at this defense, and I just want to see guys play with their hair on fire. Not just Buda Baker. I want to see it from everyone. I want don't not just JJ Watt. I wanted to see it from Lucky Fulton consistently. I want to see it from Rashad Lawrence. I want to see the two linebackers, the two young linebackers, play at the actual positions, off ball middle linebacker, and really let because I saw the the the, the 
the small steps in development when Isaiah Simmons last year, when they lot when they let him play that out that off ball middle linebacker, I need Vance to stop putting him on the edge, play him out, play him on the middle, allow him and Zayvon Collins to develop there. Let's get physical, let's be gritty, let's be tough. Let's punch teams in the mouth. Like, I don't care. Yeah, it may be early in the game. Hit them after the play a little bit. Rough them up. Let them know this is not going to be a cakewalk. That one thing about running backs is being a former running back, we are some of the cockiest dudes <laughs> on the field. Yep. I guarantee you. Like, when we run through there, if I get a five-yard gain, I'm talking to you like, hey, I'm here all four quarters. Well, hit him hard enough to let him know, so am I. I'm here for all four quarters with right. you. I want to see that physicality that Zayvon Collins showed and the athleticism he showed when he was in college, which made him a first-round pick. Because I think the offensively, once they get everyone into camp, mini camp and training camp, and uh, if they have any joint practices, which I'm not too sure of at the moment, but they have any joint practices and we get into preseason, I think the offense is going to be fine because of the weapons that they have. Yeah. And I think being able to run the ball, and I said this earlier, I would not be surprised if Keontae Ingram sees playing time early because I believe that he, his explosiveness, his physicality is something that this offense will welcome. So the offense, I think, can still put up 25 to 30 points. It's all about the defense, just getting out there and playing complimentary, tough, physical football. If they can do that, and then that will help that six-game stretch while D hops out. And when D-Hop returns, and he's healthy because he'll have a he, – he should not be hurt. He'll be sitting at home for six weeks. Like, he, he should not have to worry about an injury. He's come back healthy. Yeah, he had to get in game shape, and that's understandable. But D-Hop comes back, teams immediately respect him. Uh, and, then, and last thing, offensively, I just want to see Cliff Kingsbury truly unleash Rondell Moore. Mm-hmm. I continue to say he is the X factor of this offense, man. You know what you can get from Hollywood Brown. You know what you can get from Zach Ertz and A.J. Green and DeAndre Hawkins when he returns. We saw with James Conner, uh, and, and teams know how to game plan for those guys, right? They know, okay, I have tape on what they really can do. Rondell Moore did not even show the tip of the iceberg of what he's capable of. Yeah. Well, that because he, he was a little raw coming out. He, did, he, he dealt, dealt with injuries at Purdue, wasn't able to fully develop as a receiver. Man. And I remember Cliff and them saying, hey, we're going to expand his route tree this year. Do that. Because yep. he's the guy that, hey, if, especially when Hopkins does return, you slot him into that in that Christian Kirk role. If you think Kirk was giving slot corners problems or slot fades, this is a sub-4-4-4-3 four, 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 athlete. He's going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Who can jump for the ball too? Like I, I was telling people about this. The thing about Rondell, if it'll be interesting, is you know if he can develop. You know, obviously injuries, like you said, have been an issue for the most part. He never was really used downfield, as far as at Purdue. If he's able to develop and kind of go into that player, Kai mentioned how very few teams, when you get down to cornerback three, cornerback four, they have corners that are capable to stop when you've got multiple weapons. For the most part, that was something that stood out in the Tennessee game, where the only way they looked at it is like, all right, guys, we 
They got to stop Kyler Murray at all costs. He's been running around. He's been hitting guys. We're going to start blitzing him. But once they did, he's like, all right, great. I can either just back up, toss the ball to Christian Kirk, knowing that my receiver is going to beat your corner back. My receiver three is better than your cornerback three. If you can get Rondale into that spot, I think the other crazy thing, you know, is I think I talked to people this year with his 40 inch vertical that he's had at his height compared to, you know, a player who's bigger, but is a different type and trail on Burks with his low vertical of 33 inches. Like, you know, if they're dunking a basketball for the most part, Rondale can actually outleap the taller guy, even though he's five, seven, which is crazy to think about. So the hope at least you would have is that the Cardinals would be able to use this offense and all of the weapons they've assembled to be able to exploit defenses, be able to see, as we saw last year, when they got a lead, they were able to play super well and effective force teams into making mistakes and run the ball out. What I'd love to see this year would be them be able to know a bit more of schematically being able to play catch up football better. Cause last year we saw they had to go straight to the 10 personnel looks. They needed defenses to essentially get stops because they just weren't able to connect very well on third down. They kept getting pushed back or there were in the green Bay Packers game uh, mistakes that were made on offense and turnovers that resulted that ultimately, like I say, it's a turnover game and it's a big play game, you know, like, Big plays essentially are the things you look for because that just pushes a defense back so far on their heels, forces the opposing offense to catch up. And turnovers essentially then take something that was a possession that you had time on your clock, the ability to score, and gives it back to the defense, often in a spot where it's helpful for them to score. Being able to see the Cardinals take that next step and just being able to, you know, get punched in the mouth and be able to counterpunch. Um, I'd love to be able to see that, like you talked about with um, – being in the right place and right time for the defenders. I saw last year too many times that, you know, the linebackers eyes were out of place or you would essentially be, you know, in a position where, Hey, if teams were on fourth down and running the ball to get in, you knew that JJ Watt would come through. That was kind of it for your defense as far as it was so Watt reliant on the one player to be able to be disruptive and then forcing those turnovers. I would love to see players getting their eyes in the right spot, being able to be, like you said, disciplined um, and being able to at least play downfield where I think having an aggressive type of Vance Joseph uh, and not the, you know, drop rush four, drop back seven into more of a soft zone than not being able to get pressure without Chandler Jones or being able to, you know, not being able to manufacture the blitz. And a lot of it, like you said, will hinge on week one. Cliff, he's done super well when they've had all offseason to prep and have time. You saw them dissect the Titans in week one, which surprised people. Andy Reid's the same way. Andy Reid after the bye week and coming into an offseason. It's also a team that's going to be missing Tyree Kill, while the Cardinals are a team missing DeAndre Hopkins. I think that we'll definitely learn a lot about the Cardinals in that first week. And hopefully it's a bunch of positives that we'll take away that will carry on into the season, yeah, I, I um, even if it's in a close game. loss. I think that game is going to be more – it's more feasible than people – like you said, the loss of Tyreek Hill is going to be so they, – they, they try to, you know, replace him with bringing in MVS and, and, and they draft the sky more. But it's going to look it, – that offense is going to be very unknown. We don't know if it's going to be still RPO-centric like it was with Tyreek Hill or they're going to run more standard, normalized concepts for Pat Mahomes. And the last thing I would say that I need Cliff to really, really step up to the plate on – it's holding guys accountable. You were the third worst team in terms of penalties this this past season. That cannot happen. Offensive penalties, holdings, false starts, hands to the face, things of that matter. That, that takes a play that just went for 12 yards. Now you're in, you went from first and 10 with another new set of downs to, hey, we're first and five. We're first and 15. You know what I mean? And even defensively, holding, offsides, face masks. Not only was that a 20-yard run, but now if you tackle on 15 extra yards, that's a 35-yard play. 
be like hold these guys. I'm, it's too many times. Cliff is seen on the sideline. See him is I, I can't remember which game it was. I remember watching, and they had like three consecutive penalties. And Cliff is just sitting there stone faced. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't say anything. And he's just stoic. He's just kind of there. And you think about the, the the top coach Mike Tomlin. He's cussing his guys out. Bill Belichick. Okay, you want to keep you want to keep getting penalties. You're in the doghouse. You're not playing for two weeks. You know what I mean? Andy Reid. He's gonna pull you. You know Eric Bieniemy is his offensive coordinator. If you're an offensive player and you're doing those things, he's gonna get on your grill when you come to the sideline. So either Cliff needs to step up or he needs to hire coordinators that will do that for him. Because if he's not gonna be the guy that can demand maturity and 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 hold guys accountable, either you need either they need to look to move on from that because that's a big part of the collapse as well is not holding guys accountable and letting letting guys a get lot of penalties with all these penalties. So I want to see a more disciplined team this year, man, because I think if that happens from both sides of the football, the collapse won't. If everybody stays healthy and they play disciplined football, even with the new faces, we won't see a huge collapse at the end of the season, losing five right. of the last six games. Yep. No, and I think another area I think of last year with some of the penalties also that popped up with team health showed and exposed a lot of ways, the lack of depth on the team. Like, a good example you think of is the Cardinals are ready to score. Josh Jones gets a penalty, pushes them back. On fourth down, they then have to throw for a huge impossible to get past to Zach Ertz. And they had a similar thing on the goal line where it was the same thing, but you had no one else behind Josh Jones that you could be able to put in. It was like he was the guy you had to have in that spot and situation. I would love to see it if, um, you know, earlier in the season we saw them pull Isaiah Simmons in 2020 when he wasn't able to kind of hold up with a quick, easy option route, let up a huge touchdown. If the Cardinals this season are able to have enough depth that we can see them bringing in, then I think you're right. There's then no excuses as far as, hey, Cliff, you don't have to yell at the guy. You don't have to shout if you've got coaches that can do that. But if you can just say, all right, sit down over there. We're putting in, you know, our sixth round pick for the most part at least if will hernandez keeps holding on two calls in a row because we've got some of that depth this year that we're able to do maybe the cardinals assign a few more quality veterans that they have with uh, freeing up some of this cap space that they'll have uh, after june 1st these are all different areas where like you said it's almost a no excuses type of season for what they've put together in a lot of different ways and in that case i think it's very exciting to see the cardinals have spent a lot of time and effort to build themselves to this point it's going to be up to the team and especially the coaching staff to be able to make sure that it pays off once and for all and blake i would say to close it out when you talk about those uh you know how you handle those penalties i would start that day one of camp get let's let's set that tone like these guys need to come in knowing, hey, if you keep screw, if you screw up and hurt this team, you stop our drive, you stop our positive momentum. I'm yanking you, whether that's for a quarter, whether that's for a series, whatever that is. I'm yanking you. And like you said, you don't have to be in their face cussing, spitting, yelling. You know, none of that. You don't have to urban mire these guys. You don't. Please God, don't do that. We've seen that too from Watt and from even Kyler, like coming over with Josh Jones. Like you saw both kind of the criticism, like, yeah. hey, like you had the penalty, you had this, you had that. All right, it's all good. You're straight. It was kind of that being able to cut to the core and then not, you know, just still kind of trying to build right. some of the guy up for the most part. Like you said, we've seen that from players. It's good time to be able to see from coaches. some of that from the head coach as well, since Cliff likes to, I think, take care of things behind closed doors for the most part. As far as part of why players can like it is that they're not getting necessarily you know like ripped on the sidelines by the head coach in other places and he may do stuff behind closed doors so always take the fall for some of that i can agree with you this time you've got your contract you've got your extension for the most part at least for everything 
I agree with you. It's time to be able to at least take that next step up and be able to prove at least of being a leader of men on the field and off the field versus just being a guy who maybe is a guy that people would run through the wall for because, you know, you get to go golfing at five for the most part in Arizona. (laughs) And he trusts you that like, hey, I trust that you're going to take care of your stuff where other coaches may just treat you like you're still in college. You can't do this. You can't do that. Like Urban Urban Meyer, great example of all of that, where Urban Meyer is just like, I'm just going to go ahead and yell at this guy because I can for the most part. This guy's like, oh. You don't have, I'm an adult. From- everybody doesn't respond to that, man. So it's like, and that's the thing. Like you, you know, from a coach, you look at at, at the players you have, and who responds to what. You know what I mean? So it's like, like that's why I said, first to camp. Hey guys, I'm letting you know now. We're here to compete. We're here to get better every day. Simple mistakes. And I don't care how little or minuscule it is. You will face some type of reprimand for whether that's being pulled for a couple plays whether that's sitting out the rest of whether that's running laps after practice and having to run gassers and laps around the around the practice field whatever that is we're going to get this 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 undisciplined play out of here it is a plague it is a disease that is hurting our football team year after year we cannot be in the bottom three of penalties again so start that you know first day of camp and that builds that because what they say, what's the saying? It takes 21 days to break or unbreak a habit. Let's let's start now. Let's start that habit now and let these guys know. So when they get into the preseason and, hey, Will Hernandez, you had three holding penalties on that drive. You're not going in next next drive. Just let you know now. And discipline is also something that I view discipline and a lot of even penalties different from most people. I view penalties as a combination of discipline, but also a talent issue. Mm-hmm. Because a great example of penalties, like if you're watching Patrick Peterson in 2020 on DK Metcalf and he gets a holding call, you're like, that that wasn't a discipline issue. That was a Patrick Peterson got cooked at the line and he had to hold in order to make sure that wasn't completed. <laughs> Same thing goes, I think, with offensive linemen who get beat, who hold because they're beat on their play. Being able to yeah. have some of that talent and better depth, I think at least, that when guys get injured, that will then mean that if you're at the Cardinals and you're in a spot where you've got enough talent at the different places for the most part that you said, hey, like there's no excuse for you to have that type of a pass interference call because you got cooked at the line. That then tells you you need to be able to go and bring in one of those guys who's either you know a veteran or give a young guy a shot who's able to go out there for the most part because you've got that depth now. I think Arizona's not had a lot of that depth and has been very top heavy up until this year. Here's hoping that they'll be able to at least with some of this draft class and maybe some of the other moves be able to have enough talent that now you're not having to worry about like upholding oh, call because this guy, you know, his footwork was off sync having, you know, a false start because this guy is trying to get a jump snap on there because that's the way he gets his advantage against a pass rusher. Like there's different areas of talent that I do think come up at least for the most part. And, um, that's something I think that at least we'd love to see. And especially from Kyler, like you said, too, having him being able to go out, probably getting his deal at some point this off season, seeing that same type of mentality that he had before. And like I told people, like if he was going to basically act like he was hardcore competitive with a $36 million contract, the number one pick, and was still going to act that way, most guys for the most part when they do that aren't going to suddenly drop off a cliff when they get that huge payday. Um, I think that's one of the areas at least that I feel comfortable in that. But being able to for sure see guys have that when he does come in as able to participate versus, you know, hopefully um, – Obviously, there's no expectations of any type of holdout. He'd get fined monetarily if that was the case. But yeah. seeing, like you said, that kind of united front of the leadership of the team kind of all coming together to bring the team up versus being able to, like you said, having just a couple of guys with a couple of penalties let the entire team down. Exactly. 
It's good stuff. Hey, thank you again so much. Be sure to plug yourself in any work. We'll love to have you on and as we get kind of closer to sure. um, some of the areas of the 2023 draft. Absolutely. I um, love having someone like you on who can break down things in a way better than I even could for the most part with um, <laughs> scouting some of these players. Um, go ahead and offer like whatever you have as far as for, you know, the follows articles, like oh, this yeah, is your yeah. moment to plug yourself. Oh, no, nah, man. I appreciate it. Of course you can find me on Twitter, DP underscore NFL. I am a draft analyst, national scout over at the draft network. Uh, so definitely look out. I have a, um, what I, it's basically like a guide for running backs called the rush report that will be debuting, um, with the 10, with 10 running backs that were selected from the 2022 class, just to give everybody a small taste of what the 2023 product will look like ahead of next year's um, draft class. So be on the lookout for that, I believe. I'm trying to have it out by August uh, before we, you know, before the season starts, just so people can get a get a taste of it. And then, of course, Cardinals-related information. I'm, you know, looking at uh, looking at tape. I'm going to have some articles coming out soon. Uh, you know, what to expect from uh, from uh, from Gladney and uh, you know who's who, you know who's the most underrated. Uh, addition to this team this this uh past off season and you know now that we've kind of we're getting through that uh cop pick window what free agents of uh, veteran free agents are still out there that the cardinals should definitely just take a look at you know and make a call and bring them in for a workout so there's still opportunities to get better with this team and there's some free agents that can definitely come in and play some roles for us absolutely hey thanks for joining us again don't forget to follow the podcast at rotb pod on twitter i'm blake murphy on twitter at blake murphy seven thanks again for joining in thank you again damien have a good rest of your day and go cards